It's Wednesday, October 16th. I'm Nicole Ellis. This is an impeachment inquiry update from Post Reports. For the past week or so, I've been staring at Gordon Sondland and trying to understand his role as the U.S. ambassador to the European Union in this saga we're seeing unfold about the Ukraine. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. So Gordon Sondland was one of a handful of U.S. diplomats trying to broker this agreement between Ukraine and the Trump administration to try to get the Ukrainians to issue a statement that said that they would fight corruption and specifically that they would look at this one energy company called Burisma, the energy company where Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was a board member. And so many critics of, of this effort saw it as a really a proxy for trying to impugn the character of potentially Donald Trump's Democratic rival in the 2020 election. Sondland and two other administration officials tried to cement that deal in text messages that have been handed over to Congress. And Aaron's been working on answering the questions we've all been wondering. Who is Gordon Sondland? And how did a businessman from the Pacific Northwest get so entangled in a scandal involving the president and the Ukrainian government in the first place? Well, Gordon Sondland declined to comment for this article, but we did reach associates of his longtime business partners, family members, friends, acquaintances. We really tried to get a, a portrait from every side that we could of Gordon Sondland. Suzanne, I can't believe things are so slow in Portland. We got a hold of this tape of a breakfast that was put on by the Portland Business Journal in 2016 that Gordon Sondland spoke at at length. My mother met my father in Berlin. They were both born in, in Berlin in the, uh, in the 20s. And so Gordon Sondland is a first-generation American. He grew up outside of downtown Seattle. Uh, we lived on Mercer Island, which was uh, a curious place to grow up because Mercer Island today has a reputation as being, you know, the wealthy enclave. Right. But uh, back in the 60s and 70s, it had a very diverse, uh, you know, social demographic. There were some very wealthy people that lived there, and there were also some very poor people that lived on Mercer Island. And we were on the poorer side, uh, but everyone and the same. And by his own account, so looked to these very wealthy families and wealthy kids he was going to school with and wanted to be like them. It sort of created, I'm, I'm going to get there one of these days. Yeah. And at a young age, in his 20s, had an opportunity to buy a hotel and was successful at one hotel and then another and another and became this magnet of boutique hotels across the Pacific Northwest. How did he end up a U.S. ambassador? So having been a very successful uh, hotelier, he was worth tens of millions of dollars. He had lots of friends who were millionaires. He would hold fundraisers in his home and invite lots of other millionaires and then bundle all of these donations into six and seven figure contributions that would get the attention of candidates running for office. He did this with Mitt Romney. He did this with John McCain. I was speaking with his wife last week, and she said, I don't know what you're into, but Gordon, all he does is politics. You know, this is his golf. This is his hobby. Big donations to presidential candidates in hopes of someday becoming actually, this was his plan. This is what he wanted to do was become an ambassador. In 2016, he was not backing Donald Trump. He was actually hoping that Jeb Bush would be the next Republican nominee and president. And so he had done this bundling effort for Jeb and had contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars only to then see Jeb have to bow out of the brace 
he decides to switch and backs Donald Trump. And one of the first things he does is contribute a million dollars to Donald Trump's inaugural. Right. And that made him one of the top 50 donors for that inaugural committee. Exactly. So that $1 million donation wasn't exactly enough to seal the deal in becoming an ambassador? For Gordon Sondland, it definitely was not because in the course of supporting Jeb Bush and then watching Donald Trump just be a very different candidate on the trail than anybody had really seen. At one point in time, if you remember the episode where Donald Trump goes after a Gold Star family, this is the parents of a Muslim American who had died in Iraq in the course of fighting for the U.S. His wife, uh, if you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me, but plenty of people have written that. Uh, she, uh, she was extremely quiet and it looked like she had nothing to say. A lot of people have said that. That's where Sondland draws the line and puts out a statement says, my morals, my beliefs are so much different on so many levels than Donald Trump, I can't support him. And so that statement became a real roadblock for Sondland to become trusted by Trump. So Sondland had to, from what we can tell, call in every favor he had from the past decade of fundraising. Rens Priebus, the RNC chairman turned White House chief of staff, Stephen Mnuchin, the finance chair for Donald Trump, uh, who became the treasury secretary. And he continued fundraising through 2017. And Donald Trump decided he was on his team as much as anybody else's. In May of 2018, he nominates Gordon Sondland to be the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, a very prestigious, one of the top ambassadorships that the U.S. has. And he moves to Brussels. So he finally gets the appointment of his dreams as an ambassador. But does he continue to push and lobby and really align himself with the president? He definitely does. He had just spent this whole year trying to prove that he was not anti-Trump. So he was still in that mindset of actually trying to prove he was very much working on behalf of the president. We know that from people he had talked to. And we know that uh, as this began to unfold, this role that he had in Europe, one person told us he kind of became intoxicated by it. You know, this was a hotelier who was used to flying on private jets and having a lot of the trappings of wealth. But he was now an ambassador having dinner with presidents, getting shuttled through European capitals and security convoys. This was a whole new level of excitement. And he really uh, gravitated toward it, liked it, and started to tell people he wanted to move higher. What we can tell is that he repeatedly told people that he didn't want to be just a figurehead ambassador, didn't want to just go to parties. He wanted to roll up his sleeves and get into it the way he did in business. And he thought the European Union was particularly one area that uh, his views aligned with Trump's. Sondland grew up in the Pacific Northwest as a Republican in a very Democratic-controlled area. He spoke about this uh, back during 2016. He said that by its nature, bipartisan politics was a quid pro quo. Always was. Uh, if a Democrat needed something from a Republican, you know, what's this for that? And he would tell a story of him being on the transition team for the Democratic governor in Oregon and having had a relationship with the George W. Bush White House. And so he would back channel and, you know, ask the White House if they could do something for the governor. And he said, well, the governor would always get something and the president would always get they something. Were, um, they were done with sort of rifle precision. And there was always a quid pro quo. The governor would help the president with something and the president would help the governor with something. And it was very transactional. 
So he saw politics as transactional, which is very much the way we can tell that President Trump has seen a lot of his role advocating for the U.S. internationally. What's he going to get? And so I think what we're seeing here partly is a reflection of he might have had this understanding of politics domestically and through Republicans and Democrats as being transactional. That becomes a far more dangerous situation internationally when you're dealing with foreign policy. In this sort of vein of seeing politics as transactional, how did his role become so prominent in, in working with Ukraine? Sondland seemed to have been interested in things beyond the borders of the European Union. He would show up in Jerusalem. He would show up in Ukraine for a port visit from a U.S. Navy vessel. He would show up back in the U.S. for things that nobody was quite sure why he was there for. But with Ukraine particularly, seems to have been part of a cadre of folks who were invited to the inauguration of the new Ukraine President Zelensky back in May. And it was really some of those meetings that he found himself in that put him in square in the middle of trying to find a way to build a new relationship between the Zelensky administration, the Trump administration. And particularly in this May timeframe of this past year, he was in the Oval Office with other people who had gone to the inauguration. And they were saying, oh, Zelensky's great. We had a great impression of him. We want to get you and him together very soon so you can start building towards goals. And Trump that particular day is in a foul mood, is talking about Ukraine, saying they're out to get me, that they tried to torpedo us in 2016. If we're going to do anything on Ukraine, he tells this group, you're going to have to deal with Rudy Giuliani. And so all of a sudden, Sondland, along with uh, Kurt Volker, the special envoy to Ukraine, and uh, Bill Taller, who's the uh, acting ambassador to Ukraine, they find themselves trying then to carry out, okay, so how do they take what the president just said and uh, go deal with Rudy Giuliani and Zelensky and figure out what is it that Giuliani wants, what, what's the issue here, and how do they work it out between these two? We kind of see this blueprint of how Sondland has spent the past few years ingratiating the Trump administration to really kind of get the job he wants as the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. Are we going to see more of that in his testimony? You know, we have heard from current and former U.S. diplomats and foreign diplomats that Gordon Sondland thought his work on Ukraine on behalf of the president and the administration could really be kind of a, a make or break kind of moment for him. And he had begun to tell people maybe he could be the next secretary of state. It was possible that this was be the beginning of him moving higher in the administration if things went well in Ukraine. Obviously, they have not gone well. And him testifying and kind of throwing this ball back in the court of the president in the White House as far as I don't know if there's a quid pro quo or not. That's just what the president told me. Probably won't play very well with the president, but we don't know for certain how much he's going to try to defend the people above him. One of the most interesting parts of your findings to me is that you really kind of piece together this personality and this person of who Gordon Sondland is and his motivations. For you, what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned in reporting this out? One thing that was surprising to me, just to see, was to look through Gordon Sondland's Twitter and social media feeds over the last many months. And, you know, if you look at this, it was not anything that he thought he was doing wrong. 
he puts out there pictures of everything he's doing. He's got pictures of him thumbs up with like, you know, Andrei Yermak, this Ukrainian go-between with Zelensky. And he's got pictures every time he was walking into the White House to brief the president on something over last over the past summer. There's pictures of him, you know, selfies outside the White House every time he's going to do this. Um, to now know what was taking place at each of these meetings in retrospect, it's obviously surprising that he put so many of these pictures online. But if you look at it, you must believe that for him to do this, he thought he was doing his job. And he thought he was doing what the president wanted. You know, we're going to find out how much of a problem that is. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. Gordon Sondland is scheduled to testify before Congress on Thursday. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. Full episodes of our show come out every weekday afternoon. You can subscribe at postreports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nicole Ellis, filling in for Martine Powers. Thanks for listening.